Now we're going to look at evangelism and church growth. The issue is, is a whole series of issues, really. That is, a common mid-20th century Sunday pattern for many churches was a worship service in the morning and a gospel service in the evening. Towards the end of the century, this pattern was modified following Bill Hybels and Willow Creek to hold a seeker service in the morning when more non-Christians are likely to come and then a midweek service for Christians on Wednesday nights. Of course, you've got to remember that Chicago and northwest Chicago is one of the most Bible-centred parts of the whole of America and therefore the whole Protestant world, and that's where Willow Creek was. So the idea that non-Christians would turn up to church on a Sunday morning is not exactly your average Sydney suburb, but that pattern started to take hold. A more Anglican pattern was to, in the mid-century, or last century, was prayer book services for the community with special service of an evangelistic nature. So once a month there'd be a family service, and then once a month there'd be a guest service, and once a month there'd be a youth service. But there was no difference between morning and evening. Uh, people were expected to go both morning and evening. Uh, running alongside these services where, where most of the actual evangelistic work took place. That is in Sunday schools and in youth group. But your perception of Sunday school and the mid-20th century perception of Sunday school is quite different and different again from the ragged schools of the 19th century from which they came. The ragged schools taught the children to read in order that they might know the gospel. And so the ragged schools actually gave rise to public education as a whole system and the whole Christian educational system which wound up with the government taking it over. That came out of the ragged schools. But by the mid-20th century, we were all at school. Sunday school was to teach the Bible and most of the children in the suburb went to Sunday school. Sunday school wasn't for the children of the congregation. Sunday school was the evangelistic outreach to the children of the suburb. Quite a different thing. So I was in a tiny little church, uh, the church where Sandra was, and I was the Sunday school superintendent, uh, and Sandra later was the Sunday school superintendent. When she was there, she had six children on a good day. When I was there, there were 350. <laughs> I'd like to point this out. Um, uh, but that 20 year, uh, that 30 year gap between us <laughs> was the, was, that was the period in which nominalism just died in our country. Church going nominalism disappeared at that time, over that period of time. It wasn't that I was a superior Sunday school teacher, uh, superintendent, though that may have been a factor, but I wouldn't say so. Likewise, youth groups ran before church, after church, uh, in the evenings and the afternoons. And from the 1930s, there was a monthly youth fellowship tea and that kind of thing. And it was at the youth groups that most people got converted who got converted. Uh, church going was something that you had to do if you're a youth group member. But church going was just one of those things you endured, having actually been converted and trained and taught the gospel in youth fellowship before church or after church. There were different versions of it. People had uh, uh, Christian endeavour. There were all kinds of different versions. Likewise, the children's club midweek was the GFS, the Girls Friendly Society, or SEBS, the Church of England Boys Society, which were uniformed things. And they were the after-school clubs that ran along also as part of the event evangelistic outreach amongst children. So the real outreach happened amongst children and young people 
and the monthly service of a guest service or a family service tended to see a group of people give up coming to church weekly and only come once a month rather than actually seeing them converted. The first few times people got converted, everybody got excited, but a few years down the track it wound up just lowering the standards, which I understand is what's happened at Willow Creek as well, and that the Hybels and the rest have seen that they were in error, because what happened was Sunday church became Sunday light, and Wednesday night church, uh, instead of growing with more and more Christians coming out of conversions on Sunday morning, became smaller and so more people, rather than getting non-Christians to rise up with the gospel, it just got Christians to drop down their level of biblical knowledge and understanding. Now the collapse of actively nominal church-going community in the 1960s led to soul-searching and innovation amongst the churches. The Uniting Church just went further and further out on the limb of accommodating to the world until in the end you can't even recognise it as Christian. But it wasn't like that. The Methodists, the Presbyterians in the mid-century didn't look all that different from the Anglicans or the Baptists in mid-century. But their choice was adapt, adapt to the culture, accommodate the culture, be like it. And so their youth group, instead of running Bible study, ran dances. Uh, because that's how we'll get the young people in. And they did. Short term, they succeeded. Long term, they died. Because it didn't actually ever get the gospel there. And so that was one of the kinds of adaptations. The 1960s also saw the rise of the charismatic movement. And so you had another spiritual way of dealing with the problem in terms of the gifts and in terms of the second baptism. And it wasn't an evangelistic outreach to the non-Christian world. I'm not saying that Pentecostals don't do that, but I'm saying that's not what it was. It was neo-Pentecostalism. It was bringing the charismatic Pentecostal movement into the mainstream churches and it wasn't until the late 1980s when the um, the foundation the, the the temple trust no the something fountain trust uh, actually disbanded and then they went out into church planting and created assemblies of god churches around under new names like christian life center christian revival center but from the 1960s through to the end of the 1980s, Pentecostalism charismatics were inside, neo-Pentecostals charismatics were inside mainstream churches, evangelising mainstream Christians into the second blessing. That's what the activity was all about. Uh, and to try and revive the mainstream churches. Late 1980s, they gave us up as beyond redemption. Likewise, Every other church has had to struggle with how do we cope with a new world when the community as a community no longer comes to church, no longer gives lip service to church, no longer even stayed in bed and sent their children to church, to Sunday school. Uh, they, the children didn't come and all kinds of other things were invented like, uh, like little athletics um, or, or the, the, the beach ones that occurred on Sunday mornings which were unheard of in the 1950s, 40s, 30s because nobody could do anything other than nothing on Sunday so as to allow churches to do what they did which is why so many children got packed off to Sunday school uh, and occasionally taken. Most of my friends who were converted in that period were converted through the ministries of Sunday schools and youth fellowship. Very few people were converted from the cold. But that's because there wasn't the cold, really. You were either, the cold were the Roman Catholics. 
uh, in my part of town it was the Jews but everybody was associated with a church one way or another there were very few people who the child didn't come across Sunday school that just what the non-scripture children at our school didn't exist it was available for anybody but it didn't exist no one actually ever stood outside from scripture all children went to scripture pretty well all children went to Sunday school there were two naughty boy cartoons in my youth Fatty Finn and Ginger Meggs and both Fatty Finn and Ginger Meggs went to Sunday school or rather spent their time playing truant from Sunday school but the concept of them being Sunday school was normality now the 1960s onwards has been this adaptation process as we've tried to rethink church rethink evangelism try and reconnect those two things along what basis and how do we do what now leaving aside the vexed question of the relationship of church and worship what is the relationship of church and evangelism and then church growth and evangelism what is the relationship of church and evangelism well is church aimed at non-christians or christians or both do we hold church to evangelize should we hold church to evangelize should we adapt church to be more welcoming and accessible to non-christians should we adapt church to the non-christian culture around us and to what extent and how far are church growth and church planting good evangelistic strategies and part of the general question of the relationship of church and evangelism are issues such as whether we should have churches targeting a particular demographic group and so become homogeneous should there be ethnic churches like church of england i don't know whether you notice that but just in case you haven't woken up to it that's an ethnic church and when church of england people complain about all these asian churches they're ethnic they shouldn't be like that that's ungodly you've got to remember that anglican means england and anglican is a particular form of ethnic church is the minister the pastor of the congregation or is the minister the evangelist of the parish do we run Sunday school for the children of the congregation or the children of the community? Should we do it? Which way? Does belonging precede believing? Does membership of the faith community matter more than personal regeneration? Does the church give us the word of God or does the word of God give us the church? There are any number of issues. Once you start asking the question of the relationship of church and evangelism, you've got a whole host of issues. And my brothers and sisters you are the leaders of what's going to happen in the next generation of what's going to happen and it's going to happen about these issues so you have to think through these issues in theory and then you've got to actually think through them in the practical situation in which you find yourself which is never ideal not until the Lord returns late 20th century we saw the rise of the church growth movement it challenged what we were doing by looking at outcomes measuring the results of our ministries by numbers in church it's good and it's bad it's good in the created realism see there's a lot of flurry and activity we're engaged in but does it achieve anything there's lots of anecdotes of people being converted but are we seeing the gospel changing our world and so they created sophistication in measuring 
they, they differentiated between biological growth, transfer growth and evangelistic growth, terms which are just kind of passe today but were quite new in the 1980s, 90s. They told us and warned us not to measure week by week our attendances but measure year by year our attendances. And so the pattern of this year you will see decline, that's generally the pattern in Australia, February is really high point and things work their way down till you get to Christmas and then you hit off next February. The thing to compare is not February with December, the thing to compare is last year's February with this year's February. You might say, well, that's obvious, Philip. It wasn't obvious before they started teaching us these things. It has now become the obvious. They did another very important thing. They told us not to bother about year to year in the end, but to look decade to decade. If you want to know what's happening to a church, look at 10 years growth pattern or decline pattern. Because churches, yes, each year will incrementally grow or decline, but the really important thing is what's happened after 10 years of growing. They talked to us about practical obstacles to growth and techniques of overcoming these and techniques for growth. Uh, the importance of the, of the car park. Most of our older buildings like this one were built in age before the car. Uh, that's all right, this one's coming back now because of uh, the, uh, the, the trains and the cars or anyone who wants to drive in Sydney anymore. So, but most of our churches were built before the car so we weren't built with the car parks. Uh, Midwestern churches, of course, are in America are out in country towns where there's always area around the edge of the town where you can put up a big building and you can put up a big uh, car park. But putting up a big car park on the edge of an American town draws people to a church in a way that we don't necessar can't necessarily do it except, say, Castle Hill or out of those, the outer regions of Sydney, Campbelltown or the like, if we had such money. Uh, they talked of the, uh, the, the patterns of growth and stagnation that happen. So a church around 150 to 200 will start to stagnate unless there's increased staffing that takes place because the one person cannot continue to grow churches, generally speaking, beyond. So there are all kinds of good things that they analysed and saw in churches, but there were bad things. That is, it has a completely eclectic theology. They work with anybody and everybody, and so they talk in generalities about what happens to a church, comparing a Roman Catholic church, a Baptist church, an Anglican church, a Pentecostal church, as if it's the same thing, as if it's the same animal. When our philosophies and theologies of what we're doing in church, our practices in church, are completely different at certain elements anyway. And they have a false theology of growth and a false theology of church. Anything that is institutionally Christian is church, whatever it may be. Because that's where growth patterns and decline, that's where the techniques and mechanics can be evaluated. But then anything that is growth is evangelism, even though the growth might be in a completely heretical church. Because you can grow a church with good heresy. That's quite potentially available to us. And so it's not really what we're talking about when we want to preach the gospel. It had a church focus rather than a kingdom focus. There are lots of discussions of the relationship between the kingdom and the church, but you can't measure the kingdom, you can measure the church. And so church growth is about church, not kingdom. And when it's about church, it's nearly always about my church, not your church. It's not the growth of the church, it's the growth of our church, my church, that becomes important. And so I see the growth of my church at the decline of your church, and I think we're getting somewhere. 
which of course Christianly we're not getting anywhere we're just moving the deck chairs on the Titanic to move people from one church to another church and not actually see an overall that is they didn't see that evangelism can lead to church decline as a possibility my first year in one church we arrived with 120 members at that church at the end of that year there were two of those people left it was a great evangelistic year um, 38 people joined us quite a few have converted many of whom stand in Christ this day and some of whom are in full-time ministry in the gospel and on the mission field but during that period of time 118 out of 120 people walked out the door because of the gospel I was preaching church growth and then you get the other one I mean our friends out at Fairfield Fairfield has been a terrific church anyone from Fairfield here at the moment who's working in Fairfield it's a wonderful church Fairfield's ministry has been fantastic over the last several rectors but it's never grown there's lots and lots of people who have been converted in Fairfield but anybody who gets converted thinks twice about whether they want to live in Fairfield whether they want to raise their children in Fairfield and so they move on it's a great exporting church but if you want to measure its effectiveness by church growth it's a dud but oh that we had more duds like it we would be getting somewhere with the kingdom of God if we had dud churches like Fairfield and so it's it's measuring the wrong thing in the end see what is important is not the percentage of growth of your church what is important is the percentage of the population in church that's the really important thing if the percentage of population in church was growing then we were getting somewhere but if your church is growing well we don't know where we're getting doesn't mean anything and so the Bill Hybels church grew from you know 10 people to 30,000 people over a 15-20 year period but the percentage of people in northwest Chicago going to church going to church didn't change one church collected up people from everywhere but church going remained static now you can always say yes but we know this person's converted that person's converted yes they used to get converted in lots of the little churches now they're getting converted in the one big church but you're actually not changing the landscape with the gospel particularly what we have in the church growth movement was American pragmatism and there's nothing wrong with America and there's nothing wrong with pragmatism per se but it's about tactics not strategy and it must be placed under theology and not replace theology now we are the theological leaders of the churches and we've got to remember our part in the process we may be involved in the pragmatic tactics of the church as well it may be the parish council is going to do that maybe a group of elders maybe an administrator that will do it we've got to make sure that their tactics are informed by the strategy but the strategy is our job and it's a theological strategy that is needed you've got to turn your theology into practicalities that's the process of life you're in in the first few years out of college and the real rubber hits the road in your first year as a rector if that is where you wind up that is where you find out that all the great theories you had were stupid and you need to start all over again because it is just so tough it's always different to what you expected and that first year or so as a rector is about the hardest life of a, the hardest year of a minister's life um, 
it, it's like the first year of a school teacher. It really is hard, that work. Now, there's a difference between strategy and tactics. Strategy is the science or art of planning and conducting a war or a military campaign. Whereas tactics is the science of organising and manoeuvring forces in battle to achieve a limited and immediate aim. It's, to put it in extreme, the general who does the strategy, it's the sergeant who does the tactics. Down there on the field, what the general doesn't know is where that tree was, where the hole in the ground was, where somebody left a football for you to trip over. There's a whole range of stuff he doesn't know. You've got to have tactics to be able to put the plans into operation. But it's very important that you put the general's plans into operation and that you don't have the sergeant running the war. There are two things that are different. Tactics are the immediate decisions you need to make. Strategy is the large scheme of where you're heading and why you're going, where you're going and what the ultimate aim is. Of course, people can use words differently. I've just picked the dictionary definition uh, because it suited how I use the words. Now, what is God's strategy? Well, if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 24, I mean, you can see it in many, many parts of the Bible, but this one I was on yesterday up in Dubbo, so you get it again today. Luke 24, uh, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples, and he said to them in verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. Here was God's long-term strategic plan, to send his Son into the world, to die for the sins of the world, and to rise again, and pour out his Spirit upon his people, who would take his message to the ends of the world. In, in one sense, it's a, a, a two-stage strategy. One stage is to send his son to die and rise and to pour out the spirit. The other is to send his people out into the world with the message of his son. There's God's plan for the world. He wants all nations to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And so here is what our kind of strategic pattern is. Notice the planner is God the Father. And so in... Uh, Ephesians 1, his plan in verse 10 was to sum up all things, unite all things under the headship of Christ. Ephesians 3.9 also introduces the concept of church in 3.10, but it does so in terms of God's plans. The builder of the church is Christ himself. For he says, upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus is the builder of the church, and the evangelist in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter 1 verses 10 to 12, uh, it speaks of the Holy Spirit as the one who preaches the gospel through us. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. It's a very important little passage. You have to study the verse 12 carefully to see what is being said here because most English translations jumble the words. They're not inaccurate. It's just it's phrase upon phrase upon phrase and it's hard to tease it out. But it's the Holy Spirit who is the evangelist using us to preach the gospel. But God, the Father, Son and Spirit, use us, our actions. God, God can send the angel mid-heaven to proclaim the gospel, as the book of Revelation talks. But the plan was, from Luke 24, that he would use his people to preach the gospel to the ends of the world. 
And so our actions are to pray. Our actions are to proclaim the message. Our actions have got to do with proclaiming the message to people. Our actions are to do what God does, to plan, to build and to evangelise. Now, the strategy for the present is affected by the present to some extent, but the present is not the 21st century. The present is AD. And that's why we read, if you'll just turn with me there, to 2 Timothy, thank you for reading it a few moments ago, to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4, if you'll turn there. That is, in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 9, you see that the present that we live in is the sinful days, the days when people will not tolerate and do not tolerate the truth, the godlessness of the last days. That is the context in which we operate. The Arminians keep on believing that the world wants to know God, whereas the Bible keeps telling us the world does not want to know God. We, we are not got a message that the world is beating a door to come and hear. We've got a message that the world is running away from as fast as it can. And that's going to affect how and what we do in the preaching of the gospel. Verses 10 to 17 give you the Pauline pattern. And part of the Pauline pattern is to share in the sufferings. It's to be persecuted. It is competing according to the, according to, uh, the, the rules. They're the kinds of things that we must do. But Paul... Well, you know his manner of life. You know how his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfastness, his persecutions, his sufferings that happened to him. This is what is to be expected for, for Timothy and for any who will go on because that is the nature of the world we are in and the ministry we're conducting. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ when he calls his disciples. He called those who want to be his disciples to deny themselves, take up the cross, follow him. That is the nature of it. If, if you want popularity, you're in the wrong profession. You're not going to get it. And if you do, woe unto you. For woe unto you when all men speak well of you. For so they do the false prophets of old. This is not a game for popularists. Uh, and it's very dangerous to be popular. So that doesn't mean you have to be unpleasant. Uh, no one preaching the gospel ever needs to be unpleasant. The gospel itself is unpleasant to those who are perishing. It's the stench of death to those who are perishing. Therefore, we don't need to be, so to speak. Just by our very presence, we are offensive in standing for the Lord Jesus Christ. So, verses 10 through here tells us of Paul's pattern of ministry and then chapter 4 verses 1 to 5 gives us the challenge, the challenge to Timothy to continue this work to press on with this work and you'll notice it's in the, in the sight of God and of Christ and of his coming and his appearing that is from the time of Paul to the time when the Lord Jesus returns things are actually not going to be different the, the, the strategy, the, our part in the strategy is going to remain the same. Be, be it the 21st century, the 13th century, the 5th century, or the 25th century, makes no difference really. We are living in these years, in this period of history, in this age is where we are, and this is what it's like. Now within that, the scripture has a theology of growth. 
though I don't read many people who have ever studied it and I've got no book for it so I've just scratched around and here is a theology of growth as best as my quick scratching around the scriptures give and I still think there's a, a big work that could be done here. That is, God's aim is growth in the sense that he is sending out the angels to gather in the nations. The angels, I take it, are us at this point. We are the people who are going out. We are the messengers. Angel only means messenger. They don't necessarily have wings. Otherwise, you would notice them when you entertained them unawares. Uh, You wouldn't be unawares. I've never entertained a man with his wings on, and I think I would notice if he did have wings on. Although I did see one person out at McDonald's on the way to uh, the Blue Mountains the other day wearing wings. But then again, I saw them. I noticed them. In fact, everybody did. And gave some fair distance around them, I noticed, as people stood back. If you want to get quick service at McDonald's, may I suggest wings? It really seemed to work for them very adequately. Um, a a fairy dress at the same time helped I think Um, he did look strange well God's though there is a growth thing that is although the world is hostile to us the Lord Jesus Christ is king and he has sent his spirit into the world and his spirit is calling his people to himself and so the work that it actually involves the growth is God's you know from 1 Corinthians 3. One man plants, another waters. God gives the growth. This is really important for us, friends, because it's so easy to get depressed when you don't see the growth. It's so easy to go into deep mourning over yourself, so easy to kind of revise everything you're doing, everything you're thinking, because I'm not getting growth. So easy to change the pattern of what you're doing, because I'm not getting the growth. It's God who gives the growth. Mind you, that verse also has been used by people who won't change anything because it's not my fault. God hasn't given the growth here. So I will go on not preaching the gospel to anybody, waiting for God to give the growth. You can't rely upon it and make it an excuse for not doing something, but on the other hand, you don't slash your wrists because it's God who gives the growth. But what grows? What is it that is the growth? See, in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we read, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, the word axano is the word for increased, and the number of disciples multiplied is plethuno. When you start looking up these words, you start to see patterns of what is growing and where. There is growth in church quality. For example, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 to 16, and Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, use the axono word, to talk about us growing up into Christ. It's not growth in numerical numbers, not growth in your budget, it's growth in your Christ-likeness as a church. There's similarly growth in individual faith in 1 Peter 2, 2, and 2 Peter 3, 8, 18, and, and 2 Corinthians 10. Where again, our Xano is used of your personal growth as a Christian person. But there is also growth in number of adherents with several words. Uh, not only plethuno and oxano, but prostathemi is used. And so Acts chapter 2 verse 41, the number of souls were added. And Acts 2.47, those were being saved. Were, and Acts 5.14, the believers. And Acts 11.24, people were added to the Lord. And the verse I read from Acts 6.7, 
there is a, a growth in numbers. By the way, they count them, which is interesting, um, because uh, I do too. It's just one of those nervous habits of all ministers, isn't it, that we count? It's like, why were there 153 fish that they caught, and why, what's the point of that? It's because they were fishermen. Every fisherman knows you count the fish. Uh, the only people who have the problem with why there were 153 are the academics who have never been fishing. <laughs> the growth of churches is very rare. You find in Acts 16.5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in number daily. Uh, Perisuo is used there, they abounded in numbers. But who are they who increased in numbers? Was it the churches increased in number, more churches, or was it the believers? Acts 9.31, so the church throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied, plethuno. But what is multiplying? Is it the church numbers are growing? But it's, is it the local church? We're talking here, the church throughout Judea. It's one of those places where you have the church singular referring to multiple churches. And it multiplied. How? Through multiple churches? Through more people being converted? Through... There's, though, the next area of growth is the growth of the gospel. Its impact upon people, therefore, a number of adherents. So in Acts 6-7, you see the word increased, and the disciples multiplied. Or in Acts 12-24, the word, the word increased and multiplied. Or in Acts 19-20, the word of the Lord increased and prevailed. Again, this axono word. And 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7, you see, the planting and God giving the growth. Or Colossians 1, 6, uh, like Mark 4 and the parable of the sower, the seed was bearing fruit and growing. Interesting, it's the back to front way. It's not growing and bearing fruit, it's bearing fruit and growing. But it is the word that is growing, it is the gospel that is growing. For the growth is a growth of the kingdom. Now, many of the parables of the kingdom are parables of growth, such as in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the mustard seed, for example. The, the word that's used for church rather than growth is the word building, oikodomio. It's used of the church in terms of Jesus building his church, Matthew 16, but also in the whole of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 or Ephesians chapter 4. When it talks of church, it talks much more of building than it does of growth. And it also speaks of strengthening, episterizo, the strengthening of the churches in several places in Acts. It's, it's not so much the growing of the church as the strengthening and building of the church. Uh, oikodomia, by the way, when we use the word, we, we always translate it and think of it as build up, but the word is just build. You can build out as well as up. Uh, because of our high, sky, high rise, we are great builders up. But building out is as much as building. Building can be strengthening as well. And so we mustn't always think that it is building up the church. The upward is something we're putting in because that's how... English functions. It's not necessarily contained in the word itself. So in summary, what's growing? The gospel. The gospel is the, is the dynamic in the world that grows. 
The Word of God is living and active, more of that this afternoon, but it's living and active, it's dynamic, it grows, it spreads. The number of disciples, they grow, they continue to expand as the Gospel is being preached. But the Word of God, you see, this dynamic growth, personified as, as speeding on in triumph in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1 or living and active in Hebrews chapter 4. Oh, I love that verse in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 where he thanks God that when you heard the word from us you did not receive it as the word of man but as it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. That is, as Paul preached his words, God was speaking his word and God's word is active and dynamic in bringing people to faith and in building people in their faith, and in growing amongst more people. And so in the 2 Corinthians 3, 4, 5 passage, you see the word being so important to the ministry that Paul is engaged in. Well, there's a very quick introduction to a theology of growth on the grounds that I can't find anybody else who's thought about it much. So, which, when you've got whole books and books on church growth, that no one's actually stopped to say, well, what is church, what is growth, seems a little strange. So, what are the church and evangelism? Now, in working out the relationship between church and evangelism, we're not helped by the word church. It's so loaded with the baggage of 2,000 years of history. There's little agreement about its meaning. Defining the church is almost a matter of politics. It's more about claiming the title deeds of the word than about clarifying the meaning. The definitions of the church often do little more than indicate the orthodoxy of the definer's peculiarity. I understand the word, I understand that the Bible's church is. Now, at this point you can say, well, you're wrong, Philip politely in your own head and therefore what follows on in my view of the relationship between church and evangelism you'll have to modify because you've got a different view and understanding of the church but I understand the Bible's church is the gathering of the saved around Christ to obediently hear his word and to respond in loving service to one another it's the gathering that's the concept of church it's the gathering of the saved because the opposite of gathering is spreading, is distributing, is dispersing and throughout the scriptures when you are saved you are gathered and when you are judged and condemned you are scattered. Dispersion is judgment. Gathering is salvation. It's the gathering of the saved around Christ to obediently hear his word for that is the that is the church of the old covenant they gathered together the whole nation all God saved people around Mount Sinai to hear his word and we are the New Testament church gathered around the heavenly Sinai to hear the word of God and so every time we gather we gather to hear God's word now I take it then given that kind of understanding of the church that here are ten propositions about the relationship of church and evangelism. Number one, church is built upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostolic ministry of the Word of God. And so it's the gathering of those who are saved by the Word of God. 
it's neither a gathering of unbelievers nor a gathering for unbelievers. It's the gathering of the saved. Secondly, unbelievers though may be present because the church is not conducted as a closed, private or exclusive gathering. The classic being the outsider, the idiot, uh, who comes in in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 23. And if an outsider should enter in, they would hear you speaking the word of God and they'd hear it intelligibly and so might fall down and say, truly God is amongst you. Whereas if they come in and you're speaking in tongues, they'll say, you're mad. Because you are. <laughs> Thirdly, the activities of the church life should always be edifying. So in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Edification is the criterion by which you judge what should happen, when it should happen, who should do what and how often they should do it. Edification is building both of the individual Christian as well as the whole congregation, both into Christ-likeness. And so Ephesians 4.11 following. The powers in the heavenly places see the victory of Christ in our unity. As the world sees we are his disciples by our love for one another. So as the church is edified, as we are united in Christ, the spiritual beings in the heavenly paces, the powers and principalities of evil, see the victory of Christ in our love for one another. And by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so we aim to edify, to build the church for the gospel word that converts unbelievers is the same word which builds the church and edifies believers. Christianity hasn't got two messages, one for unbelievers and another or additional one for believers. When you look at the ethics of the New Testament, the ethics of the New Testament are always grounded and rooted in the gospel. If you have died with Christ, why do you go in doing this? If you've been raised with Christ, then do this. You've died and therefore put to death that in the world. But you've risen to new life, so put on the risen life. It's the gospel is articulated for you in the ethical implications of the gospel. But ultimately it's the gospel that is being articulated and illustrated for us. Rather than we have the gospel and now we've got a Mishnah added on the rules and regulations for those who have been converted. We that, you can't have that didache over and above in addition to the kerugma. The gospel word that converts is the same word that builds. And so unbelievers who attend a biblical church will hear the saving news of Jesus when Christians talk to each other about how we live as Christians. Fifthly, church membership is the result of evangelism. Therefore, churches should always be open and welcoming to new Christians. We, we believe in evangelism. We believe that God's calling his people to himself. And so, as the gospel is preached, we should be expecting new people to be joining us, which will mean that a mature congregation will be flexible, welcoming to those who are new and still weak in the faith. Romans chapter 14 or 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10 dealing with the issue of these people who have come in some come with weak conscience still bound up in the rules and regulations welcome them 
but not for fights and disputes. They've come in the name of Jesus. One man holds one day more important than another. Another man holds all days the same. Don't fight about it. That's not the point. This is not the time. This is not the place. An edified church will be holy, sanctified and different to the world, having members who are Christ-like in character and life. Such members, because they are Christ-like, because they're following the Lord Jesus Christ, will be committed to the salvation of mankind. For this was the very mission of Christ. This is a true saying, worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How can I be like Christ and not be concerned for the salvation of sinners? Uh, it's the silliness of what would Jesus do? I've always known one thing Jesus wouldn't do, that is wear a little band around his wrist saying WWJD. That's not going to be the case. What would Jesus do? Is a speculative activity. You know, here I am sitting in this context now, what would Jesus do? And I make up a Jesus who would do the kinds of things that I would like to do most likely anyway. The question is not what would Jesus do, the question is what did Jesus do? That's the real question. And we know what Jesus did. He came into the world to save sinners. That's what he did. For this reason he was born, for this reason he lived, for this reason he died, to save sinners. How can I have the salvation of sinners as an optional extra for fanatic Christians when this is fundamental to what the Christ did? If I'm going to be like Christ, I must have a passion for the lost that will lead me to lay down my life for their salvation. That's what I must do. That's what, not as a minister of the gospel, but as a Christian, that's what I must do. Anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever loses his, whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will be saved. You can't lose your life for Jesus and not for the gospel at the same time. That, that's an absurdity. That's ridiculous. And when people tell you that you know, all Christians don't have to evangelise, they're all talking through the hat. They haven't understood the Lord Jesus Christ and following him and what it means to be his people. And so a church that is holy must grow up in Christ-likeness of nature and therefore will be absolutely committed to the salvation of mankind. And it'll be seen. That is, a holy huddle of people uncommitted to world evangelism is not holy, for its members are not like Christ. It's, it's totally back-to-front thinking. And so, if you go into a church and you've never heard of world mission in that church, I suspect there's a big work to be done there in the teaching and preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ within that church. For anybody who is unconcerned about the lost, that's prima facie evidence that they are lost. And as soon as you are found, you want others to be found. Seven, the New Testament, in the New Testament, the focus and the dynamic of growth is not the church but the gospel word. It's as the word is taught and explained that people are saved and the church grows both spiritually and numerically. The, the church growth 
is consequent on the dynamic of the word growth. Both the quality growth of growing spiritually and the quantity growth of growing numerically are both byproducts or consequences. It's not just a byproduct, it's an aim, so it's a bit more than a byproduct, isn't it? But it's a consequence of the growth of the Word of God. Eight. Evangelism does not always have to be personal, private and individual. There's nothing inherently wrong for Christians to organise corporate evangelism. Um, Jonathan Fletcher's coming to town soon and he taught me many years ago about how they evangelised in the English universities so differently to the way we evangelise in our Australian universities. For we put enormous emphasis on personal evangelism in the university ministries, uh, especially in college ministries, whereas Jonathan said they put enormous emphasis on personal follow-up and corporate evangelism. And so what you did in the college was you got the other Christians together and together you evangelised your college. So together, three of you would take three other fellows to the football game and talk to them and you would intentionally, through the course of the afternoon, watching the game somewhere, say, yeah, we know each other because of church. And then a week or two later, you'd go to the picture show and you would talk to them on the way back and one would say, well, where did you become a Christian? So that as a group of three or four, you would be evangelising half a dozen friends in the college. Once someone became a Christian, then it was one-to-one follow-up, which is just the reverse of the way we do it. But as a tactic, I think it had a lot going for it. So when I worked all this out, I left the university. (laughs) A group of Christians, though, can run evangelistic events, and there's certainly nothing unbiblical in preaching to a crowd. While evangelistic gatherings centre on proclaiming God's word of salvation, they're not the gathering of Christ's people but of unbelievers. So they don't fit my definition of the church. Sadly, however, some evangelistic gatherings are more a church than the so-called churches where the gospel is not preached at all. I think the gospel being preached is a more important element of what a church is than that the people in it are saved. However, number nine, planting And growing more gospel-preaching churches is a fundamental strategy of world evangelism. It's not just a tactic that you can choose to do this day in this battlefield, but you wouldn't do in another battlefield. This is something that is to spread across the world for everywhere. It's as the gospel is preached that churches come into existence. It's as churches grow in Christ-likeness that members will be outward-looking to the salvation of others open to new Christians joining and welcoming to new non-Christians who may come amongst us. Our prayers and people will be going out into all the world for evangelism. So a growing church, especially spiritually growing church, but a growing church, will be planting new churches as their members go out into the world, preach the gospel and see people converted. Ten, church growth and church planting can be a distraction from gospel growth and evangelism. Often church growth means little more than my church growing, just as church planting can be simply an egoist starting his own church because he can't get on with anybody else. Such growing, growth and planting can be at the expense of other churches without any evangelism taking place or new people being saved. It's more important 
to reach a growing number of the people in the community with the saving news of Jesus than simply planting and growing churches. Now, you can see there, the tactic can overtake the, the strategy at this point, can't it? The strategy is to get the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ out. The tactic may be to grow this church or to plant that church or to... But you can spend so much time on the church that you actually don't preach the gospel anywhere. In summary then, evangelism leads to church growth and planting, which in turn, if the church is edified by the gospel, will lead to more evangelism. But the initiative is evangelism, and it is the edified church which will undertake it in the community. So I come then to the tactics. We'll get to question time if I just go through these quickly. I can do it, I think. You do it? You're all right? I know I go at speed sometimes and you just need a little rest to your brain, just to have a kind of put it in neutral for a moment or two at the red light and get ourselves fired up again. You've got to watch out with some of these cars, though they go into neutral, they just turn off at the red light completely, don't they? It's just a bit of a problem when the bloke behind you starts. Okay, the tactics for A. It always involves flexible hard work. Christian ministry is hard work. You'll find it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The hard-working farmer, the athlete, the um, um, soldier. They all suffer. They all work hard. They're all planning for the future. But it's got to do with flexibility. The tactics. It's not, there is just one way of building this church. There is just one way of evangelising. There's lots of ways. And we need to be flexible, especially We've had to be flexible in the last 50 years. Prior to that, you could run the same program that had been running for 100 years. But in these last 50, 60 years, we've had to learn how to do it in new ways, and I don't believe we're there yet. I think we've still got a long way to go to work out how to reach our community with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel and the society around us is changing at a faster rate still. And so it's... We've got a lot to do, my brothers and sisters, in being flexible, but it takes hard work. It's never, the gospel, and the ministry of the gospel is never going to be simple. Because what we're trying to do is two things, really. We're trying as ministers of the gospel to build the church, and we're trying to evangelise the world, and our own city and suburb in particular. Second thing then is to say, well, what are the tactics involved in Sydney today? Well, we could spend the rest of the week on that, couldn't we? Let me pick three elements that are critical off the top of the head with no particular reason other than when I was thinking about it, here were the three that came first to my mind. Number one, it's multicultural. The Anglos are hostile to the gospel. The greatest opportunities for the gospel we see are the ethnic minority groups. I was down in uh, Melbourne at a conference last week speaking with uh, Andrew Reid and he told me in their churches they've got a Cantonese church, Mandarin church Anglo church, he said they're running two adult baptisms each year with about 20 at each of these baptisms and he says really exciting, great things happening down there at Doncaster and he said in the baptisms nine Asians, one Anglo each time and what's more to get that Anglo to the point of baptism takes ten times more work 
than any one of the Asians as well. That is what he's being faced now. As he said it, I thought, yeah, I was just thinking back through my last decade here or so, and yes, we've seen lots of Asians converted here. We've seen Indians, we've seen Iranians, we've seen all kinds of people, Anglos, hard as nails, really resistant and against the gospel in a way that our ethnic minorities aren't. Uh, the gospel's for everybody, even for Anglos, but if we concentrate on Anglos, we're certainly concentrating on the hardest ground in the, in the land. And furthermore, we're concentrating on a group that is going to be diminishing in its content of the population in the coming hundred years. It'll take a hundred years to diminish really seriously, but it's already diminishing. And you just look, we're not reproducing. Anglos don't have babies. It's the ethnic groups that have the babies. And we're not migrating anybody in. $10 poms don't come anymore. So where are we getting people from? Everywhere but the Anglo world. Is this bad news? Well, if you're an Anglophile, it's appalling news. You know, go to Tasmania, cut your wrists or something or other. But if you're a Christian, it's fantastic news because the mission field is coming to us and places and people that we could never go and preach the gospel to, closed doors, they're now living next door to us. It's terrific opportunities. But we've got to grab hold of them, friends. That takes more flexibility. Second thing, materialism. Materialism is practical atheism. Don't worry about Mr Dawkins. Dawkins is terrific. He gives you preaching opportunities like we haven't had for years. There's a whole bunch of them. Look up Mr Nagel. He's terrific too. Because he's an atheist who says there's no meaning, there's no hope, there's no purpose. He, he's quotable. There's a whole string of them that are really terrific. Atheists are fantastic preaching material. But the reality of atheism is not them. They're a tiny, tiny minority of almost no significance in our community. Materialism is practical atheism. And that's everywhere. That's what Australia is about. That's the barbecue stopper, the price of real estate. That's, that's what life is all about in Australia. It's materialism and that's practical atheism. It destroys the amount of time people have. It destroys the amount of family time they have. It destroys the sense of community. All the things that we need for gospel preaching, it destroys. I understand that 40% of Australians turn their mobile phone on and get their messages and deal with their messages before they get out of bed. That is appalling. It's not because I'm against having a mobile phone or a smartphone. I have them. But it's an appalling way of life. The intrusion of the world into your life that you can't get out and have a cup of coffee and smell the roses and talk to your kids before you've been dealing with the messages from around the world. I'm saying it because I know some of you are here. Uh, it is just a wrong way to live, but it's part of materialism. You wouldn't think of it as materialism, but it's materialism. It's got to do with our wealth. It's got to do with our pursuit of technology. It's got to do with... We are living in a world which is seriously disordered by our massive wealth. The third thing about Sydney is it's expanding. It's expanding at terrific rates. And so just to maintain our market share of the community means we must keep on planting new churches. McDonald's found this in America. They planted across America all their franchises and then they stopped because they had one everywhere they needed. And over the next 10 years, they lost their market share completely. So around the world, McDonald's has had this policy of always planting new. Because you've got to plant at least as many as the growth in the population just to maintain your market share. 
If you want to expand beyond that, then you've got to plant them at a faster rate than that. Well, we have a city that is expanding at enormous rates. And so church planting, especially on the edges of our city, but now that the city's compacting with, you know, Zetland, Roseland, you look down Rosebury there, that high-rise area, thousands of people are moving into a suburb that used to be just factories. We, we've got to, brownfields, greenfields, we've got to be planting churches. Uh, we've got to be having new evangelistic outreaches and missions wherever it may be. Third thing is Anglicanism. You see, the Anglican system is a parish system. Parish system is both brilliant and dreadful. It's brilliant because somebody is responsible for everywhere. It's dreadful because those who are responsible have it as their fiefdom and their kingdom and won't let anybody else do anything in that area even when they're not doing it themselves. They become real dog-in-the-bone kind of characters. You can't come and preach in this patch because this is my patch. Okay, what are you doing it? Nothing, but I'll get around to it one day. When, how long have you been saying that? Well, ever since I've been here, 30 years ago. But one day I will get her. In the meantime, you stay out of here. And so instead of working cooperatively and collaboratively on a parish system, we tend to use it as a, as a system that doesn't work for us at all. Now, the parish system also says that the local Christians are the missionary band for the parish. Please get clear in your head the difference between a parish and a church. A parish is the community in which the church exists. The church is the gathering of God's people together. Well, you gather God's people together, you build them up into Christ-likeness in nature so that they're concerned for the lost. Well, it's not just the lost overseas, it's the lost down the street. It's the lost all around about us. There's enough lost everywhere not to have to worry too far to go. And so we have to regain our perception of the lost around us. That happened mid-20th century. See, all the children in my local primary school went to Sunday school and were evangelised. But now we've lost that sense of those children are our responsibility. We have the cure of the souls of the parishioners. Not just the church, the parishioners. That's the system that we have. But it's not being used as the system is being used as keep out of my territory, which is a complete abuse of the system, so completely back to front. Our church theology is good because it has a sense of gathering. Our parish understanding is deficient because that's our evangelistic mission field. And the fourth thing is local. That is, the decisions really need to be made locally. Uh, and you need to lead them locally because there's no point having a committee in town deciding what's the best way to reach the people in your locality. We have a, a terrific system of the parish system. We've spread everywhere. And spread everywhere, you've got to understand your own locality as to how you preach the gospel in that parish. Do you want to ask any questions?